Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that you're calling us as sons and daughters, children of God. And he says this, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. In the place where they were called not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Father, I thank you that in the place in our minds and in our hearts where we were once we were once we once thought that we weren't your people, we have now become sons and daughters of the living God. Where our minds had been brainwashed by the world to think that we were forsaken, done away with, cast off, forgotten. That the God of heaven and earth had said, in this place, in your heart, in your mind, beloved, chosen, called, set apart, mine. So Father, we pray this morning that that same Spirit that rose Christ from the grave, Father, the Spirit that spoke creation into existence, the light, the Word that said, let there be light, would shine in our hearts. That same Word, that same power, that same life, Father, that that word would take its place in our thinking, in our mindsets, our attitudes. It would set up its home inside of us. Father, that we would be made new and the fullness of everything that is you would be inside of us. So Father, I thank you for what you have been doing here this morning already. You're awakening hearts and minds to hear and receive a word that would make us free. So Father, we praise you, we thank you, we honor you, we just appreciate you for who you are. Love that you have chosen us. Love that we can join together, worship, adore, appreciate who you are. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's always an immense privilege to to be here and to be part of family to, and to share. Um, it, it really is. It's, it's a privilege to be a co-heir of Christ. You know, we're called to reign in life through Christ, hey? And I feel like even over the last couple of weeks, I've certainly been learning and stepping into more of what it means to be a co-heir, what it means for my life to be hidden in Christ and for my days and everything that I'm a part of to be a fragrance and an aroma of the goodness of God. And it's awesome. It makes life exciting. Hey, it takes you outside of the nine to five, the rat race and into the race. You know, Paul said that he's running, he's, as it, it says, if he's in a race, and he is set on claiming the prize, the upward call of Jesus Christ, hey? What an immense opportunity to be liberated from the daily earthly things of life, for our hearts and our minds to be set on the things above where Christ is, seated in heavenly places with him. 
And while we're here on earth, actually we're reigning in life through Jesus Christ. What a promise, eh? What a promise. Man, it feels like this morning already there's been such a theme that's been coming through of identity. Really, it's probably been the theme of the last 10 years. It's all a theme. It's all him. But he's touching on just an aspect of who we are and who he is that I think it's so important for us to grab hold of. I just want to read that verse. Um, Again, it's from Romans. It's a quote from the Old Testament. I think it's Hosea. And God says this, he says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. They shall be called sons of the living God. Now, there was once a time in a people who, through their own decisions and and actions, were called not his people. And God has used this as a divine typology, not to talk about them not being his people, but to highlight his immense goodness and his calling and his choosing of these people who would be his own possession. And he uses it as a typology and says that these people are there for your instruction to whom the ends of the age has come. Did you know that? That all of this history in this book, thanks, mate, was actually not necessarily just for them, but for you. Did you know that creation itself exists for his purpose and your purpose in him? You know, it says um, about the manifold wisdom of God that God created all things, this is in Ephesians 3, so that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Now, God is saying here in Romans chapter 9, he's saying here's a typology of people who weren't chosen, but through the grace and mercy of God, we're reconciled back to a relationship with the Father. And he's saying that, why? Because that same process that they went through physically, we're to go through spiritually. Has, ever, has anyone ever woken up at a time in their life and felt like they weren't chosen? They weren't called. They were rejected, cut off, separated from God. It's not a hypothetical question. Has anyone felt like that? Has anyone woken up in the morning and felt totally secure in the goodness of who he is, chosen, called, set apart, entirely his? Because in that place where you were called not chosen, he wants to call you sons of the living God in that place, in your heart, in your mind, in your thinking, where you once might have thought that you weren't called, weren't chosen, weren't set apart. He wants to call you, transform you, so that your thinking and your mind are set on his thoughts, his heart, his intention for you. Isn't that massive? In the place where you once were, you will now be called sons, chosen, to wake up in the morning with such security, such a backbone that nothing going on around you will impact what's going on within you. Where you once were not, you now are. This is the message of the gospel that was preached back then and is being preached today. It's a message that changes you on the inside. It's a message that enlightens your eyes to see who you've called to be before the foundations of the world. You know, it says in Galatians about, about Paul, and he says that at the time, there's a time where he realized 
that he had been set apart, chosen from his mother's womb for Christ to be revealed within him. Interesting, eh? Would you not think that revelation is something that happens to you? Actually, Paul is saying that revelation is something that happens in you. So in the place where you once thought this, you now think this. Where you once were insecure, you are now fully, completely convinced of his goodness and his grace towards you. And you know where it all starts and ends? Right here. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. There's a verse that's not unfamiliar to us, but I think probably the reality sometimes can be unfamiliar. And so I may as well get started. Um, This is Romans chapter 12. Um, This is what we're going to be looking at today. Oh, there we go. Microphone, thank you. Um, And it says this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. What a verse, aim. So over the last couple of months, we've been looking at this theme. Does anyone know what the theme is? Oh, it's a bit of a giveaway on the... (laughs) Uh, on the board back there, any take? Uh, oh, it's there. Okay. Um, this theme of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And actually, I might go, might go there to start off with. Um, it's in Colossians. You don't have to come with me. Let me just flick there. It says this, uh, let's see, verse 25, Colossians 1. Of this church, this is Paul, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made known to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory um, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul saying this, he says, Of this church I was made a minister, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, this great mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I was having a coffee with one of my workmates, um, who's also a Christian, has been a Christian pretty much his whole life, goes to another church community. Um, And we were just dialoguing, and um, he asked, you know, I I said I was... um, I'm going to be sharing on a Sunday morning. And he said, oh, what's the theme? What are you looking at? I said, well, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he looked at me funny. Sorry, he's like, excuse me, uh, Christ where? Sorry. Uh, um, um, I said, oh, Christ in you. He's like, oh, I've never heard of that before. I said, it's in the Bible. Um, And so it just struck me that this person, lovely, lovely guy, good heart, been grown up as church his entire life, but has never either read or come across this great mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul is saying here in Colossians that this great mystery of the church, he's saying that he was given a stewardship to preach this mystery, and that unless he preaches this mystery, he has not fully carried out the preaching of the Word of God. So unless we hear, receive, take on board this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, I wonder if we have received fully the gospel. Have you considered that this great mystery was all about your transformation, becoming like Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that this gospel isn't just here to forgive you from your sins, but to make you like him? in your heart and in your mind. Now that is a powerful gospel. Now it says this, who has ascended into heaven, that is to drag or bring God down? Who has descended into the depths so as to bring him up? No, the word of God is in you, in your heart and in your mouth. 
Now that is the word of God that we preach. Those are Paul's words. Who has gone? Who's ascended into heaven? Who has gone up to where God is to bring him down? Who has worked his way to somehow get God to do his thing? No. The word of God is in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. This is the message of the gospel that we're going to be looking at today. So back to our verse in Romans 12. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We've heard a lot about transformation, haven't we? Over the past kind of eight or ten years, it's almost like a reoccurring theme that we hear week in, week out. And so I felt like it was important this morning to give some context to what that transformation process actually looks like. When I say transformation, there's all sorts of things that it could mean. And so this verse here brings real light and clarity onto what it actually looks like to be transformed. So it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. He doesn't say be transformed by trying harder, doing better, making more effort. He says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something about the renewing of your mind. There's something about seeing clearly that changes you. You know, Jesus says, if your eye is single, your whole body is filled with light. If your eye is single, your whole body is full of light. If what you believe is correct and right, if what you see of God is true and real, your whole body is filled with light. If you see God clearly, you'll never live another day the same. You'll be transformed in your thinking. You'll go through life reigning instead of straining. So Romans chapter 12, the transformation of your mind. This little popular verse is actually set in a much wider context. You know, I think sometimes preachers myself probably included, can be so quick to just whip a verse out of the Bible and and preach on it. But actually, these weren't written as preaching material. They were written as letters. And so chapter 12 starts like this. It starts saying, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I don't know about anyone else, but When did you start a brand new, fresh topic by using the word therefore? Where's Steph? I need some English teacher clarity here. It's not done, right? It's not done. Thank you. So when you have to ask, why is the therefore therefore? So now this was fascinating to me when I was looking at this week. And actually the context that this is set in is Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, which are all about this mystery of Israel and the church. What on earth does Israel have to do with being transformed by the renewing of your mind? It seems like two completely different subjects, and yet Paul links them together. It's almost as if saying that if you don't understand this, you won't understand that. You know, in Romans chapter 11, just before we get to chapter 12, Paul says this. I says, I don't want you to, I, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, speaking about this mystery of Israel and the church. Otherwise, you will be wise in your own estimation. Whoa. So there's something about a mystery before that if you don't grasp, you'll be wise in your own eyes. You'll be spiritually arrogant and proud. Why? 
Because when you hear about a word of transformation, you'll think that it's something that you need to manufacture, come up with, do, strive for, make happen, as opposed to a transformation that happens in you by the divine power, grace of the Holy Spirit. So Romans chapter 9, starting there, is a really fascinating verse. Um, It's a very misunderstood verse for some particular reasons. I'll I'll, I'll read this to you. We're going to read a bit of the Bible today. Is that all right? Um, We don't seem to to read the the Bible that that much, to be honest, and you're pretty much going to hear my entire message is just going to be reading the Scriptures. Is that all right? Um, And I'll give you a little bit of commentary, um, but ultimately... Um, it's whether we whether we read the Bible or whether we proclaim the Bible. It's all it's all the same thing, eh? It's it's him. It's, his word is as living. It's as real as powerful today now as when it was first written. Um, so I'm just trusting that as I as I read this, um, that that same spirit that spoke those words that transformed lives back in the day is going to transform our hearts and minds now. So it says this. Romans 9, chapter 6, But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins had not yet been born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's gracious purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who called. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, Just as it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Wow, what a confronting passage of Scripture. Is the word hatred even allowed in the Bible? My goodness. So he uses a couple of examples. He uses, what's her name? Forgotten her name now. Sarah. He uses Sarah, and then he uses Rebecca. And he said this, he said, this young lady, Rebecca, who was pregnant with twins, before the twins even came out of her womb, God had called one for a purpose and not the other. Is he allowed to do that? Is God allowed to choose? You know, these are the kind of verses that can fuddle our minds, hey? They're the kind of things that we read and we're like, what, are you serious? And now this is why we must be renewed in our minds. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because we, when we come across verses like this, if we aren't renewed in the spirit of our minds, we will read this and we'll apply it to our own lives our own way. So if you're doing well and you're just killing it in life, you're thriving in your relationship with others and with God, you'll read it and think, man, I was that son who was chosen. I was the chosen one. It's me. It's all about me. God's chosen me. If you're down in the dumps, things aren't going your way. You feel so far away from God. You've had an argument with your wife. You are just not feeling that great about yourself. You'll read a scripture like that and think, I knew it. 
I was forsaken. I was rejected. I wasn't called. God hasn't chosen me. Is that right? Do those thoughts ever enter into your mind? And yet there's something about this passage that while on the outset it would seem to approve one and condemn someone else, if we were to receive this through true spiritual understanding, we would realize that what it's talking about is that you are chosen. Because where it was once said, forsaken, you have now been called children of the living God. Where a scripture like that would come into your mind, because what was within you, your fallen nature, you being in a fallen nature doesn't mean being doing bad things. It means that in your heart and in your mind and in your thinking, you think as being separate from God as opposed to joined to Him. And so everything that you go through comes through your filter of being separate from God, of being rejected, of being cast off. But if we would hear this verse and what he's saying, we would be forever unable to see ourselves as being rejected, not chosen, not wanted, cast off, forgotten about. Now he says this. He says, for, th- for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of works. Now, on the surface, this verse seems harsh, and our old way of operating seems light and easy. But the more that you get into it, and the more that you try to approve yourself to God through works, the harder it becomes to actually become pleasing to Him. Now, I don't have a testimony that sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I have... I came from a background, we grew up coming to church services. I came from a place of trying to be the best person I could possibly be in God, but through my own ability. Now, the gospel is so awesome because it lets you try your absolute best and then it whips the mat out from under your feet and in your proudest moments, you come crashing down to a heap on the floor. Now, these people in Romans had all of them. This, he's talking to Israel here. So the, these people, Israel, were actually called as a people, as a nation. They were called and chosen by God. Rebecca's two sons were both called. And yet, right here, these, this nation of people were desperately trying the best that they could to please God. But it says this, in the later part of Romans 9, but they stumbled over the stumbling stone, thinking that their ability to draw near to God and to please Him had come through their own ability. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They were, they were running well, and they stumbled over a stone. It says a rock of offense that their own ability to live out the law came crashing to a staggering halt. And that's what happened to me when I started to realize my own capacity could not cut living a divine life in Him. Now, why is this important? Because right here, Jacob, I... Loved and Esau I hated. You know that word hate is the same word that's used in the context, if anyone comes after me, let him hate his own mother, brother. So what's he saying in this context? Is God actually, or Jesus actually in the New Testament, endorsing us to hate? No, he's not saying that. What he's talking about is making God the utmost priority 
of his life, elevating one thing over another. God's choosing. It's about choice. So, how do I say? When, so when he's talking about Jacob and Esau, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, what he's saying is, Jacob I have chosen. Esau I have not chosen. Why? Because God as God has the only person who can actually decide what he wants and what he doesn't want to choose and not to choose, right? He can. So why is this so important? Because those who were previously not chosen, he has now called sons of the living God. There was a typology given in the flesh to highlight the divine salvation that God wants to come into our thinking and into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, not based on works, but based on him who calls, based on him who calls. So now, I feel like I'm laboring on this point. It says this, if we are uninformed of this mystery, we'll be wise in our own estimation, thinking that our own ability to come to God will come through our own efforts and not through his, God's own gracious choice. Let me, put, let me say the, exactly the same thing in other words. We are called and adopted as sons of God. What does it mean to be an adopted son? that you're chosen because you're wanted. God is laboring the point that I've chosen you. You're, a per, you're being called according to my promise, not your works, my promise. And so now that is so important moving into Romans chapter 12 because when it says this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the word of God is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. The context here is that you're chosen, is that you're called, is that you're set apart, that when you were once not chosen, you have now been chosen. You've been bought and paid for, bought with a price, chosen to be his, called according to his promise. So in the context when he says this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When he says do not be conformed, if you take something, if you conform something, you take something that was once pure, holy, right, pristine, and then you change it, right? Why is this so important? Because in the verses leading up to this, we've just heard that we were called according to a promise, right? And then he says, so do not be conformed. You were called, chosen, created pure, created to be mine, set apart, a person of promise, so now do not be conformed in your thinking. So where do we start? Do we start as one conformed to the world? Or do we start as one an ear according to his promise? Now if you start as one conformed, you're immediately lost the battle because in your thinking... You've already missed it. But if we start as ears according to his promise, and we hear the exhortation, so therefore do not be conformed. You're called for such purpose. So don't let that be compromised in any way in your thinking and your attitude and your mindset for who you, from who you were called to be. Now, we're going to have a look at this in the life of Abraham. 
So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15. You can pop your finger in the other um, Romans chapter 12. For those who are writing notes, I'd, um, point number one was God's calling and choosing of us is solely based on his promise and not on our own works. Point number two, if we do not have our eyes set on his promise, we will try and manufacture God's outcomes through our own efforts. All right, so Abraham And uh, in Genesis chapter 15, the title is this, Abraham promised a son. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your ear, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your ear. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So, you, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham was a man of promise. God comes to him at the age of 85 years old and says to him, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. You're a man of promise. Now, obviously we hear about a promise in this context being a son, but what, is, what are the promises that God has given us? eternal life. It says that, that he has given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of a divine nature. So as we work our way through Abraham's story, ultimately this is not actually a promise about a man and his son. It's about a promise for a God who's called and chosen us to impart and impute and form in us a divine nature. That's Christ within us, the hope of glory. So Abraham, this man, is called at 85 years old. A little bit old for a baby, wouldn't you say? A little bit old. His body is starting to decay. He's starting to think, man, my superannuation is going strong. Like... Um, this is the kind of life that he's in. He's, he's kind of probably winding things down, you know, investing in his kids, thinking about his inheritance. And God comes to him and says, cool, now's the time. Now's the time to have a son. Now is the time when finally you're at an age where your body cannot physically cope with having a child. Now I'll come. Now, who here would believe a promise like that? Would we even receive it as a promise, or would we see it as mocking? Would we see it as condemnation? Because when we hear the Word of God coming and calling us up to something that is above and beyond our own human capacity, how do we hear it? Do we hear it as a promise? Did you hear Jacob I love and Esau I hated as one of the most incredible divine promises of God's calling and choosing of you? Or did you hear it as something that condemns you? Well, the answer will be in here. Where's your thinking? Has, what source has it come from? Has it come from separation from God? Or has it come from being renewed in the spirit of your mind to see and think who you were called and chosen to be? So Abraham, this great man of promise at 85 years old, is promised a son. But something happens along the way. 
that acts as maybe just a minor speed bump in the process. If you flick over to chapter 16, it says this. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Prevented? I thought the promise was that you would have a son. So Sarai said to Abraham, Now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I'll obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Abraham's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abraham as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. So Abraham, this great man of promise at 85 years old, was given a, um, a divine word from God that he would have a son. And it's been 10 years between Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 16. That's a long time when you're 80, starting at 85 years old to be waiting for a promise of childbirth. How long are you prepared to wait? for the promises of God before taking matters into your own hands. So now here in chapter 16, both Abraham and Sarah are getting a little bit antsy. Things aren't really happening as they expect. And so Sarai says to Abraham, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Isn't that an interesting comment? Where did that comment come from? when the divine promise was actually, no, I'm going to give you. I wonder if we can have that in our attitude towards God. When he's calling us to live and reign in life through Christ. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. What a promise. So when we hear Promises like this, promises of having Christ formed within us, promises of a son that would come in your own age. Where do those kind of thoughts come from? Not from him. Now, why is that? I just was sitting and and pondering on this um, this morning before I came here. And so Abraham, this man of faith, is given a promise. And yet it's Sarai, his wife, who questions and says to him, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Interesting. Prevented me from bearing children. Now, she doesn't necessarily doubt the promise that Abraham was given. But she doesn't see herself as being part of that same promise. Interesting, eh? Yes, Abraham, I believe that you will have a son. I just don't believe that I'm part of that equation. God, I believe that you will marry your pure, spotless, blameless bride, but I just probably don't see myself as being in that position. You know, the promises of God are not limited by gender, by ethnicity, by past, by the nation that you grew up in, by the school that you go to, by the work that you have. You know, in the specific context, God had chosen this people, Israel, to be a people of his own possession. And now the divine mystery of the gospel that's revealed in Ephesians, as he says this, he says that you who are once far off, cut off, not my people, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says this, you're being brought into the commonwealth of Israel. That 
you will never be Israeli in your bloodline, but you've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel, heirs of the same promise as the people of Israel. So what does that mean? What, what is a commonwealth? Well, we are part of a commonwealth. We're part of the commonwealth of England. So what, what, what does that mean? It means that I'm personally not English. Well, I'm, I'm, actually, I do have a little bit of English blood in me, but I, I've, I've got a New Zealand passport. I'm a New Zealand citizen. I'm not from England. But I'm part of the commonwealth of England. You know, when Europeans came to New Zealand, when they signed the treaty and became part of this commonwealth, they received the same rights and became under the same authority as the people of England. Now, we've been called to be part of the commonwealth of Israel, part of the commonwealth of God's people. So these... Christians here in the New Testament receiving those promises where, oh my goodness, we can share in the divine inheritance now of the people of Israel. No longer separate, but one. This is the mystery that the two would become one. So here Sarai, she hears the promise, she receives the promise that was given to her husband Abraham. But in her mind and her thinking, she sees herself as being disconnected from that promise. And so in her mind, she is conformed to the patterns of this world. She's conformed in her thinking to analyzing and reasoning. She looks at the situation in front of her and she lets that situation define her as opposed to looking at the promises of God and letting the promises define the situation. What about us in our lives? Are we living in and from the promise? Or do the situations in our life around us impact what we see or what is happening within us? Do we influence from the grace of his promise within us? Or are we influenced by everything going on out here around us that then somehow changes and nullifies the promise of God. In actual fact, it doesn't nullify. But in your thinking, you've disqualified yourself while being a person of promise. Sarai was a woman of promise, not because the words had been directly spoken to her, but because she was joined to a husband who was a recipient of that promise. I hope your ears are tingling. Joined as a wife to a husband who is an ear of promise. My goodness, I only just thought of that right now. Isn't that that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That we are joined as recipients of the one of of promise of Christ, and we enter into that same promise for no other reason than that we are in a covenant relationship with him. Man, this is what, I have such a love-hate relationship with preaching. (laughs) I hated it last night. But there's something about just being able to be a co-ear with God and receive from him. I'm like, man, I was just fed. I hope that you were fed. Almost feel like, just don't worry about the rest. That, that word right there. We're joined to him. I just want to say, just on that, guys, if you, if you have a spare 45 minutes, I would really encourage you to go and listen to Noel's message on on covenant, it was absolutely divine. It's not the theme of my topic here today, but go and have a listen because it will bring so much clarity to what God is doing here and the kind of relationship that he wants to have with us. So back to Abraham. I'm a little bit
a bit lost here about where I'm up to. And now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had bore him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will attain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And Abraham lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Abraham's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abraham, his wife. So Sarai and Abraham make a plan together. Sarai initiates it. She's thinking from separation from God. She's thinking through what the situation is telling her needs to happen to manufacture and produce God's outcomes. She's not thinking through a transformed mind that sees God's absolute total faithfulness to perform on the word that he had delivered. And so she says... um, So she encourages Abraham to go into her maid. You know, so the good Christians that they are, instead of just going and sleeping with the maid, of course he gets married to her to tick that box. At least I'm not breaking that rule. But yeah, in his attempt to be good, like these these guys here are trying to fulfill the promises of God. God had said you'd have a son, right? So, it's been 10 years, it's just not happening, my body's not working, what is going on here? They say, okay, well, the obvious solution is that it's me, I'm the problem, says, says Sarai, I'm, I'm the issue here. So look, if, if you go in and you go and marry my maid and sleep with my maid, then, of, then, then you'll have a son and it will be all good. So they do things by the book, they get married, they tick all the boxes, they make sure that they play the Christian part. And they have a son. They have a son. That's the promise. God promised Abraham a son. Is it? Why not? We're going to unpack some of those questions in just a second. Obviously, the suspense is killing you. So Abraham receives the son of promise. He receives a son. Now, God's grace is incredible, hey? Because as you read on in that passage, Abraham receives a son to this maid. And God is like, Abraham, appreciate your efforts, mate. But just honestly, it just... That's not kind of what I was after. And in the graciousness of God and who he is, he meets with this maid and comforts her and says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to be part of your life. I've, um, I'll, I'll, let you go and, I'll let you go and read it. But he doesn't say, forsaken, get out of here, forgotten. No, he says, hey, cool. I, I, um, I don't say here. Um, he says, and the son of the maid, I'll make a nation also, because he is your descendant. Um, I can't find the verse exactly that clearly articulates it, but in essence, he, God says, I'll bless the son. I'll, I'll, I'll support, I'll look after, I'll watch over the son. But yet he didn't allow Abraham to rest on his laurels. He, he wasn't prepared to sell Abraham and, Sar- or Abraham and Sarai short of the fullness of a divine promise. He wasn't, allowed, he wasn't prepared to leave him stuck in his own efforts, achieving his own outcomes. Now here in this moment, when God came to Abraham or Abraham and confronted them with this issue of this other child, wouldn't you think it would be so easy for Abraham to get all insecure? He's missed it. He's called and with a promise that through his offspring, all of the, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he's gone and blown it. He's gone and manufactured things for his own efforts. He's totally missed the boat. And, and yet God, when he comes, he doesn't 
in his God and his perspective, he doesn't see Abraham's disobedience as having any bearing on the eternal promise that he had called him into. You see, if it starts with a promise, then it will end in glory. If it starts as a problem, then instantly you have disqualified yourself. So what about you? Are you called, chosen with a promise? Do the things that you struggle with prevent you from entering into that promise? Do they disqualify you? Absolutely not. You know, it says that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. In the Old Testament, God calls, there's occasions when God calls prophets and they become false prophets. Why? Because his gifts and callings are irrevocable. Now, I'm using that as a typology, that his calling and choosing of you has no bearing on, his calling and choosing of you is not determined by your ability to perform and work for him, but it's determined on his goodness and his grace towards you. All right. We've kind of gone way off track a little bit. Let's pull ourselves back to Romans 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we've heard, do not be conformed to this world. We've looked at that. Do not be conformed in your thinking. Do not be conformed to thinking that you need to perform for God to enter into his promise but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. You know, here it's so important to understand the nature of our transformation is not about trying to be a better person. It's not about trying to learn the scriptures more. It's not about having more Bible knowledge. You know, I used to read that verse and think to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you could prove what the will of God is. That if I just gain some more scriptural knowledge, that when I'm in a debate with you, I'll be able to prove to you what the will of God is because I know it and you don't. Actually, it's the complete opposite to what that verse is talking about. He says, do not be conformed to the will, but be transformed. See, in my zeal, in my zeal, to prove the will of God, I had been conformed to the world in my mode of operating, in my mode of being. So he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. So what is it saying? That you need to be transformed in your mind to prove what the will of God is. You know when it says prove, in the Greek there, it means that the will of God might be proven by you. That's literally what it means. That the will of God might be proven by you. Isn't that so different? 
If you prove the will of God, then it's about your intellect, your ability to debate, your ability to make a convincing argument. If it's about the will of God being proven by you, it's about the demonstration of your life. It's about the fact that you've received and are now living from the promises of God. That now you can give living testimony to the fact that Jesus had died and is now resurrected because that resurrected life now lives inside of you. You've become a living demonstration, a living representation of the glory of God. And the will of God is proven through your life. No one can take that away. No situation on the outside because it's not something that's on the outside. It's in here. And so God in Genesis chapter 17 reaffirms his covenant with Abraham in light of Abraham's and Sarai's disobedience. You know, Abraham's name means exalted father. And Abraham's, sorry, Abraham's name means exalted father. And Abraham's name means the father of many nations. See, Abraham started as a man of promise, but he was living. He lived for a time as a man conformed to the patterns of this world. He was an exalted father. He was a father of a son but he became the father of a multitude of nations. He started as a father of an earthly child. He became the father of faith, the father of a demonstration of an entirely different way of living and operating. A man who had not been conformed to the ways of this world, but had been transformed in his renewing of his mind so that he could prove what the will of God is the goodness of God being made manifest and made real through his life. So what happens in Genesis chapter 17, God touches base with Abraham and he calls him by a new name. There's absolutely no mention of Abraham wallowing in self-pity, being drawn back to who he used to be. Why? Because when his mind was renewed, transformed in his thinking, he became in the reality of his life who he was always called, predestined, and chosen to be. When you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, what you're doing is you're allowing your thinking to be renewed to what has already been done before the foundations of the world. His works were completed before the foundations of the world, and they're completed towards you. If you remember back to where we started, Abraham, uh, God said to Abraham when he believed, not the last time, but the first time, that it was credited to him as righteousness. He was righteous when he believed. But when his mind was transformed, he became a living expression of that belief on the earth. So in Genesis chapter 17, Uh, sorry, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Abraham is finally given a son. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had and said, uh, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and, gave, uh, and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son whom was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, uh, to him Isaac. Then Abraham was circumcised uh, then Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So Abraham was a man of promise, and he received the promise, he believed it, and he was, and God credited it to him as righteousness some probably 15, 10, 15 years before. But that righteousness, as we see in the pattern of his life, wasn't always demonstrated by him when the rubber hit the road. And Abraham's story is not one then of his own goodness, his own ability to, to do what God had called him to do, but it became about God's absolute faithfulness to perform what he had promised. Now, this is to be the example of our lives, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That as we 
in life come to know God in a real and living way, that what those works that were done before the foundations of the earth become manifest within us as our minds are renewed to believe the truth about God, who God had always called us to be. It says about Abraham, in hope against hope, he believed, and he became the father of a multitude of nations. You know, our transformation is not to be this slow and grueling process where we're always struggling and it's always hard. It's to be one that's full of life, full of vitality, as we set our minds on the things above, as our minds and our hearts are transformed and renewed to who he says about us, and we begin to live and walk in that truth. We truly are set free from having mindsets that are conformed to this world, thinking who we're not, renewed in the goodness of his grace and love towards us to who we have always been chosen to be and become. Cool. I'm going to leave it there, um, but let's let's just pray. And so, Father, I just pray that this word of promise, this word of life, would set up its home inside of our minds and our hearts, Father. That we would see ourselves as children of promise, not forsaken, not cast off, not done away with, Father but children of promise, recipients of your power, your life, your love, recipients of the works done before creation. Father, let those works penetrate our hearts and let your work penetrate our heart and minds so that we might live here a people not conformed to this world, not conformed to our own ability, not conformed to how we've always lived, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, being able to truly prove through the demonstration of our lives your goodness, your faithfulness here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.